0: you've got your Bibles this morning, I'm going to invite you uh, to go to uh, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 12, and I'll get there in just a moment as we read uh, this text. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to read your word this morning, we're mindful, God, that there are many who long to be in relationship with you as we are in relationship with you, but they just, God, they don't know how to connect with you. And so, Lord, as we read your word this morning, speak to us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, God, because each one of us desperately needs some good news in our own life. And, Lord, we know the world needs some good news. And so, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we are going through a sermon series on discipleship. and We're asking ourselves week after week, what does it mean to follow Jesus? A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. And we've been looking at different aspects in very practical, tangible ways of how do we follow after Jesus in our lives today. And today we're going to look at at the focus of Jesus. What did Jesus spend his life doing? More importantly, who did Jesus continue to focus on? Jesus was always focused on the who-who. Over the what? In our scripture reading today, we're going to look at who Jesus was focused on. And of course, we know that Jesus was focused on the lost. Those who are far from God. I'm reminded one day as Jesus was talking to a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And he looked at Zacchaeus and said, I have come to save and to seek those who are lost. Those who are far from God. That's why I came into this world. Oh, I care about those who are connected, those who have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. But I am really passionate for those who are lost. Earlier this spring, I made a quick trip up to Bolingbroke in Chicago to go to Ikea. Anybody ever go to Ikea? I love going to Ikea and a typical trip uh, up to uh, Ikea begins in the food court, right? Swedish meatballs, sometimes the $2 breakfast, it always ends with, uh, I don't know, Swedish coffee and of course Swedish fish or Swedish chocolate. And then after we've hit the food court, we're sauntering, meandering through the maze. And if you've been to Ikea, you know that it is an absolute maze. And so we'll spend an hour looking at all the household items and goods. And it's, it's kind of just fun to see because they do such a nice job staging everything at Ikea. Well, on this particular day, there was no food court. There was no sauntering. I was on a mission. I had several items to pick up. And so I raced through the maze at IKEA, and I grabbed each one of the items. I was very efficient. I came out into the warehouse. I knew exactly where to pick up the bookshelf, loaded it onto my cart. I went to the checkout line, checked out, paid. I was ready to go, and I was feeling so good about myself and how efficient I was through that maze at IKEA. In fact, I was so impressed with myself, I thought, you know, I'm just going to check and see what time it is, because I've probably got time to spare. And I went down to pick up my phone. I couldn't find my phone. Have you ever had one of those panicked moments? where you can't find your phone, and I just kept doing this, thinking the more I do this, I'm going to find my phone. I looked in my cart, and it wasn't there. And I left everything on my cart right there at the exit door, and I was going backwards through that maze, thinking of every place that I could have set down my phone, and I'm starting to panic in my head. And finally, I got back to the entrance where I came in and still no phone. Well, at that point in time, I had lost my mind. I started doing the calculation. What is it going to cost me to get a new phone? How, many, how much time am I going to spend re-entering all my contacts? Who am I going to lose touch with? I can't even call my wife and ask her to help me out because I don't have my phone. And I am just freaking out. And so I'm pushing people out of the way, and I'm going back through the store, and there's more and more people through that maze, and I'm all over the place. And I just scour Ikea for my phone, and I still couldn't find it. And I have just lost my mind. I am just desperate. So I finally find a young hipster clerk in Ikea. And I said, I have lost my phone. Can you help me out? He said, You know, a little bit ago in my earpiece, in my ear, I heard that somebody turned in a phone to uh, check out counter number six. I sprinted to check out counter number six. And I explained exactly what my phone looked like. And the hipster clerk at checkout six handed me my phone. Now, I have never wanted to kiss my phone before. (laughs) But in that moment, I had this overwhelming urge to kiss my phone, to coddle my phone, to hang on to my phone and just be so close to my phone. And I wanted to give that hipster clerk a hug. But I restrained myself, and I said, thank you. And I put the phone in my pocket. And I remember driving back to Bloomington thinking to myself, I've got my phone. (laughs) My phone is back. I didn't even care about those items that I had just purchased at Ikea, because I had my phone. And I had this overwhelming sense of euphoria that my phone was back with me. And I remember in the car promising my phone I would never be so careless again. I would take care of my phone. Have you ever lost something so valuable that you've lost your mind? That didn't matter what was going on around you, that you just dropped everything, and you were absolutely focused on whatever that thing was. Anybody ever lost your car keys and lost your mind? How about your wallet? Ah, you lost your kid. I thought I was the only one that did that. Anybody ever lose a wedding ring, an engagement ring? Ah, the whole world just doesn't matter, right? Because we're so focused on that one thing. And that's really what this story is about today that Jesus is t- telling the people. That there's something so valuable that he's just willing to lay it all aside, just to set everything down. And so, if you've got your Bibles, Matthew 18, Jesus tells this story to a group of people. He says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for that one that wandered off? Now, those of us here today who are not shepherds, maybe not farmers, we're like, I don't know. He's still got 99. What's the big deal, Right? But everybody who was there on that day, they were shepherds, they were farmers, they were people who understood without question, of course, you just leave all the sheep because if you've got one missing, you drop everything and go. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Isn't it true that when we find something that we've been looking for, we're actually happier afterwards than we are before about that thing? Honestly, driving up to Bolingbrook, I wasn't really thinking about my phone, but I was so happy about my phone coming home. I was so happy to have it returned to me. And that's what Jesus is teaching that we all know in our lives too. We're so happy about that thing, and it's so important to us. And then he gives us the punchline. In that same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Here's the point. This is how Jesus views the world. This is how Jesus views every single person in your neighborhood, in your office, at your school. Jesus views every single person with that kind of love and passion, with that kind of concern. Jesus says there's really two kinds of people in this world those who are connected to their heavenly father and those who are disconnected. He says, Oh, I love and care about and I'm concerned about those who are connected. I'm happy for those who are connected to their heavenly father. But guess what? I am passionate and I lose my mind over those who are disconnected. And so those of us who are sitting here this morning, I would imagine if I asked you to raise your hand and said, how many of you are disconnected from God? Probably few hands would go up, right? Because when we gather in church, most of us have come here this morning because we're looking for a relationship with God and to grow in our relationship with God. Unless, of course, your parents dragged you here this morning. <laughs> and you didn't have a choice. But it's interesting for us in the church, isn't it? Sometimes we mistakenly think that Jesus came just for us. And he says, I love you, I care about you, you church people, but I'm really concerned about those who are not in church on Sunday morning, those who are disconnected from their heavenly Father. Why does this matter? Why are we talking about this this morning? Why is this so important for us? I think it's important for us because the gravitational pull for every church, for the local church, for this church, for every church that's meeting this morning, is always about the 99. It's so easy for us to be focused on the paying customers. Those of us who knew how to get to Lakeside this morning, those of us who knew to come in this room, those of us who know when to sit, when to stand, when to pray, when to say the Apostles' Creed, if we can receive communion, to come down the aisle, to go this way. Oftentimes we think, I know the song that we're singing this morning. We think the church is for us, and that's kind of normal, right? Too often we think the church is for the 99. And Jesus says, I love the church. I love you. I love each and every one of the 99. But he said, I have lost my mind I am passionate about those who aren't sitting here this morning. I am passionate about these empty seats. Jesus says, that's what your heavenly father is passionate about. I think oftentimes we hear this message. We're like, yeah, that's good. I like that. I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, with that same focus, that same burning passion that Jesus had for the lost, for the disconnected. How do I do that in my life? Because I know when I come to church... I see people that are familiar, people that I like, and my gravitational pull is to find those people in church, find those people in community who are connected to God because it feels so good. But what I struggle with is connecting with those and inviting those who are far from God, those who are disconnected from Jesus. So I think, how do we do this? And I think the method that Jesus used is really the, the same method that we can use today. Jesus went to those places where the people were. Oh, he gathered in church. He gathered in the temple. He gathered with the religious people. But oftentimes throughout the New Testament, we read that Jesus went out. He went to the people where the people were. He went to where the people were playing, where the people were working, where the people were traveling. He would go to schools. He would go to where people were. He met them on their turf. And then he would have a conversation with them. And then he would invite them into a relationship with Jesus. This past summer, our son Q was invited uh, to play on a travel baseball team. Now, we've been involved with travel baseball for, I don't know, seven, eight years now. So we've kind of gotten used to uh, the rhythms of summer baseball, spending an extraordinary amount of time out at the ball field. And I got to tell you, I love every minute of it, watching my son and the boys play baseball. In the summer, if you had gone out and watched this particular baseball team play, you might have thought, oh... Another baseball team playing baseball in a normal kind of way that we see on a typical way, and oftentimes, frankly, on a Sunday morning, right? But I think if you had looked just a little bit closer to this baseball team that he played on this year, you would have discovered something different. He was invited to play for a team called Game 7 Sports. And the mission of Game 7 Sports is to deliver God-honoring development opportunities through the powerful platform of athletic competition. I want to read that again. The mission of Game 7 Sports is to deliver God-honoring development opportunities through the powerful platform of athletic competition. This is a baseball team that uses baseball as a platform. It's not about baseball. It's about ministry first. It's about God honoring first and baseball second. Baseball just happens to be the platform for how they do something so much bigger. And I love the manifesto of Game 7 ministry. Their manifesto or motto is this, changing the world through the hope of Jesus. One athlete, one coach, one team at a time. And if you follow Game 7 baseball, you see the coaches and the team, and they're united in this mission, in this manifesto. Jesus first, baseball second. And so as I got to watch these boys play baseball all summer long, I have to tell you, I was absolutely overwhelmed by what was going on on the mission field that also happened to be the baseball field. And it's no accident that they're called Game 7 Ministries or sports in his book, Uncommon Hope. Jim Collins talks a little bit about what it means to be Game 7, and this is what he writes. The words Game 7 conjure up a variety of images for athletes and fans. The Celtics and Lakers in several iconic NBA Finals matchups for basketball supremacy. Sandy Koufax shutting out the twins on two days rest with torn ligaments in his elbow to win the 1965 World Series. Bill Meserowski and his epic home run to beat the Yankees in the 1960 World Series. That was before my time. (laughs) Still the only Game 7 walk-off home run in World Series history. Many different phrases also come to mind when athletes and fans hear the word Game 7 uttered, win or go home, "One and done, do or die. It's that moment in sports when everything is on the line. All the cards are on the table. And last year, many of us remember the Cubs and the Cleveland Indians and in the World Series, and it went to game seven, nine innings, and we were biting our nails. Was that not the longest rain delay ever? <laughs> we were on the edge of our seats because it was a game game. Seven moment. It was that epic, it's all on the line here, folks. For Coach Collins and his son, Michael, quote, the real Game 7 is accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we will help athletes make that decision and grow in their faith. That's the real game seven. And so this summer, as I watched these boys and coaches off and on the field with their mission and their focus to reach those who are far from God, it was extraordinary to watch these people, these young people, in self-restraint when there was a bad call, Against our team. All the calls for the other team were good. (laughs) But often on the field, the coach has always reminded the boys boys, this is why we're here. First and foremost, it's about Jesus. Our platform just happens to be baseball. And oftentimes, uh, well, actually, after every single game, go ahead and put it up on the screen, the boys would gather around home plate and they would pray. And oftentimes, the other team, as they were invited to come and pray with our boys, would gather around that home plate and they would pray with us. It was powerful. 15, 16 year old boys. You know who's praying there? It's not the coaches, it's the boys. They're testifying to their faith in Jesus Christ and thanking God for God's goodness. I remember early in the season, one of the coaches from the other team joined our team in praying around the home plate. And afterwards, he came up to one of our coaches and said, Thank you. He said, I'm a Christ follower. But I don't always know how to be a witness for Jesus in baseball. You've just helped me to understand that. He said, from now on, I'll be praying with my boys around the home plate. I think that's what it means to use a platform in our lives to proclaim Jesus. So I'm going to ask you the obvious question this morning. What's your platform? What are those things that are unique to you that you can speak into other people's lives? People who might just be far from God. Some of you work in the school systems. You know what happens when I go to a school here in Bloomington Normal? The door's locked, I have to check in at the office. Some of you can just breeze right into the schools here in this community. You know what happens when I go to country financial or to state farm? I sit in the lobby. And if I don't have an appointment, that's as far as I get. Some of you can navigate your offices and go all over the place, places that I'm not allowed to go. Some of you in your businesses, you know people that I don't know. You speak to people who don't want to speak to me. They're going through struggles and challenges, and the last person they want to talk to is a pastor. But your neighbor might want to talk to you. A friend that you know that I don't know might be a conversation with you. My son will tell you that we don't do batting practice at our house because I can't even throw a pitch not my platform. Baseball is not my platform. My son hits off the tee. But some of you are coaches. Some of you have skills, athletic skills, and you can pour into young people. Not my platform, but that's your platform. And so this morning, as we think about the parable, the lost sheep, those who are far from Jesus, and make no mistake, that is his passion. He invites us to go searching, too. Let us pray. Oh, God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that once upon a time, we were that lost sheep. Each one of us in this room was far from you, and you didn't give up on us. The Lord, you were so passionate about each one of us You came into this world to suffer, to die on a cross so that we might have abundant and eternal life. And now, God, we celebrate that we are among the 99. But, God, you call us to go, to go out into the world, to find others who are lost, who are far from you. And so, Lord, equip us, empower us, give us courage to find those people and invite them into a Game 7 moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.